Today's text comes from Exodus. I'll give you a chance to turn to your Bibles or your electronic device. We're going to start reading from verse 1 to 9 and then skip down to 15 to 28. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Skip down to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw down the, the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. 
So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose the derision of their enemies, the, and then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All and all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. This is God's word. Good morning. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you on the first Lord's Day of the decade. Pretty cool opportunity. I know I only swung that because PJ's in Cuba with the rest of the guys, but still a cool opportunity. Um, and I'm happy to be here. So if you haven't already turned there, please uh, do open your Bibles to Exodus 32 so we can look at God's Word together and we can see what's there. And while you turn, allow me to offer a little bit of context. You probably remember from our series a few months ago through Exodus that at this point, the people of Israel have been led and fed by the providence of God daily as he brought them out of the land of Egypt, led them by a pillar of cloud and fire, provided manna for them in the wilderness. So they've depended on him continually. And now we come to this part where they're at the foot of the mountain, at Mount Sinai, and they hear the voice of God giving them his law. And they see the lightning flashing around the mountaintop. They feel the earth shaking underneath them. And they make a promise to God to do everything that he says. Right? So God speaks audibly to them. They respond. We say, yes, Lord, we'll do what you say. And then Moses goes up alone to the top of the mountain to receive a copy of the law. So they went there from speaking to God directly and seeing God lead them for months to Moses isolating himself from them and going up alone to the mountain. You see the difference in their perception of how they're interacting with God, speaking to him every day, seeing miracles every day, to being distanced for over a month. So Moses goes up alone, and the people clearly feel at least two things. They feel impatient, and they feel neglected by God. So rather than follow the worship that God had prescribed to them and be patient like they were told, they attempt to bring God down from the mountaintop into their midst and fill the perceived gap in their relationship with God with what is familiar to them. It's the opposite of the Tower of Babel in one sense. Right, So the Tower of Babel was people using human effort and ingenuity to ascend to God. This was them using human ingenuity and effort to bring God down to where they were and to make him into an image of something they can understand and relate to. They adopt forms of Egyptian worship that are culturally familiar to them, and they rewrite the commands of God to align with their own desires. They remake him into something that they can control. And this brings us to the primary observation of our text today. If your worship does not reshape your life, then your life will reshape your worship. We're going to look at that observation with one three-part question. The question is, are you being remade in the image of your world, in the image of your desires, or in the image of God? So if your life does not reshape your worship, then worship will reshape your life. And the question is, are you being remade in the image of the world, your desires, or of God? Now notice this question that we're using assumes the reality that we're already being remade in the image of something. 
You're not just staying neutral. Neither am I. No one is. Romans 1 makes it very clear that we all have a knowledge of God. We all have a knowledge of the truth. And we're in the process of either suppressing that knowledge, pushing it down, or embracing that knowledge. To those who embrace the knowledge, God gives more knowledge of himself. And to those who suppress it, he actually gives them over to a depraved mind. It says to the worship of the creation, exchanging the glory of the creator for that of the creation. But we have to realize that this suppression that is so common to all men is not an issue of whether or not we're worshiping. It's rather an issue of how and what we worship. We're not given the choice to suppress worship with non-worship, only to exchange true worship for false worship. Worship is an inescapable reality of all humanity, and I'd spend time proving it to you if it weren't an inescapable of reality of all humanity. We all feel this, we know this deep down, and we're going to see it illustrated. As we're going to see from Exodus 32, either your life reshapes your worship of God or your worship of God will reshape your life. It all depends on whether you're being remade in the image of your world, of your desires, or of God. So we're going to take that one point at a time. First two points, we're going to pause then for a brief application, then the third point, and we'll conclude. So let's dig into the first one. If you're being remade in the image of your world, then your God will look like the gods of your neighbor. It's ironic painfully so, that the God that brought them out of Egypt would be made to look like and be worshipped like the gods of Egypt. The golden calf, though, was not a foreign god to Israel. They actually believed it was Yahweh. They were just remaking them, him, according to the pattern of Egyptian worship. This is Aaron doing his best, trying to fill in the gaps of his understanding and his experience of God with what was culturally familiar to him. And he even says it explicitly. He says, behold your God who brought you out of Egypt." He's not saying that Yahweh didn't bring them out of Egypt. He's saying, this is Yahweh that brought you out of Egypt. And why would he do something like that? Right after God specifically told them not to use images, in the second commandment, don't make graven images to worship, why would he do that? Because that's what Egyptians do. Because that's what Egyptians do. You just look at the Egyptian worship, it's all full of weird animal human hybrids. Their gods were all exchanging the glory of the creator for that of the creation. And you see, when the people abandoned God and the worship of God, they didn't just go directly to pleasure-seeking. They do get there, but not directly. Look at verse 2 with me. Rather than simply reveling in their riches and in the possessions like good heathens, they melt down all of their valuable gold to make this calf idol. They melted down some really expensive and valuable things in order to have this golden idol. They reverted to the familiarity of Egyptian idolatry, even though it was very costly to them. And it's important for us to realize that sacrificial idolatry is not even uniquely Egyptian, which is why it's still familiar to us today and why it was comfortable for them to go back to. The opposite of godliness in any culture is not materialism or even atheism. It's idolatry. It's sacrificial idolatry. God has not left men the option of not worshiping. All people worship, and all worship involves sacrifice. You see, before the Israelites can worship their God who justifies their desires, they still feel compelled to sacrifice their gold to him because sacrifice is always a part of worship. So if you want to know what you worship, examine what you sacrifice for. Now, outside of Christianity, this notion of idolatry and sacrifice might feel a little primitive to us. And I know that paganism sounds like a foreign word, but really we still do the same thing. Only today we have exchanged our golden calves for giant golden images of ourselves. 
in the belief that you are perfect as you are and deserve everything that you want is the new national religion. It's still exchanging the glory of God for his creation, even if it's a creature that's been made in his image. We are still created beings, and as such, we owe our worship to God directly, not to ourselves, not to anything else. But our desires for self-worship are too attractive to resist apart from his grace. So our culture has developed a mechanism, a religion, to justify this. The gospel of self-love is preached as openly as any pagan worship or religion ever was. Failure to worship at the culturally approved idol of self is met with rebuke and encouragement not to listen to anyone who tells you you're not worthy of worship. And they tell you this not at all because they think you're worthy of worship. If that were true, they would be bowing down to your image beside you instead of over there bowing down to their image away from you. But they tell you this because it's a symbiotic relationship. You affirm my worship of myself and I'll affirm your worship of yourself. Anyone who does not participate in that self-worship or hinders the self-worship of another can't be trusted and must be openly opposed. And this is where the sacrifice comes in. For us, it is human sacrifice, and it comes in the form of the sinners being exposed to open ridicule on social media until they're fired from their job, disowned by their family, and made a public example of. The social practice has been called cancel culture, And it's when a person is socially boycotted into personal and professional ruin. You can always tell that a deity has been offended when the punishment does not fit the crime according to any human standard. In American culture today, rather than going through the extra steps of making our false god to justify our desires, we cut straight to the chase and just make our desires our false god. So in our culture, especially, even more than others, it is crucial to not only ask, are we being remade into the image of our culture, but are we being remade into the image of our desires? So that's the second part. If you are, then your god will command worship in accordance with your desires rather than his. First off, Notice the presence of circumstances outside of the Israelites' control in verse 1. They say, let us make gods who will go before us. Now, they knew that they faced more enemy nations and other hardships ahead. They knew that they had depended on God for their food and their sustenance and their provision up to this point. But somehow that was still not enough to break them of their feelings of entitlement to be provided for according to their expectations and their timetable. And that's because it feels unsafe to depend on a God that does not operate according to our assumptions and expectations. Now look a little earlier in verse 1. In addition to the circumstances outside of their control, notice the perception of an absence of revelation from God. They see that Moses is delayed. God had finished speaking to them in chapter 24, and then Moses went alone to be with God for 40 days, and the people apparently felt jealous and neglected. If God is not speaking to us on our timetable and our preferred mode of communication, then we feel distant from him, and we tend to make up revelation to meet our felt needs. Is this not familiar? How many people today say they feel like God is being silent to them and then turn to resources like Jesus Calling or the Shack that claim to speak for or about God in ways that Scripture does not? Anything that will fill the perceived gap in our relational closeness to God. And also, if God is not making us wealthy or providing for us the way that we want, in order to preserve our belief in him and justify our frustration, we'll make God out to be a deity who desires our physical prosperity, even if we have to make him incapable of providing it for us without our permission. This is why the Christian bestsellers list, year after year, they're filled with books teaching the prosperity gospel, 
It's dangerous, and it includes an impotent God who wants you to be wealthy but somehow can't seem to make it happen without your faith or permission. This is not the God of the Bible. And see the way that the Israelites worship in verses 5 through 6. Even though they sacrifice their riches to the calf, the worship is in the form of feasts and peace offerings and celebration only. There's no atonement for sin. There's no repentance, only celebration. Idolatry is the only way to have both your sinful desires and a feeling of closeness to your God. Remember that the identity of this false God they're worshiping is Yahweh in their minds. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is where the clean conscience comes in. They don't believe they're making an idol. They're comforting themselves with the thought that maybe Yahweh is not as scary as Moses said he was. Maybe Yahweh is a God of love who cares nothing for sin. And maybe love is what I want it to be. And maybe in the end, love wins. And I want to take a brief intermission here for some application and examine the similarity between each of the first two points, being remade in the image of your world and of your desires. Both of these are examples of doing what comes naturally to us in worship. The problem is that our natural inclinations are fundamentally marred by sin. In our brokenness, we've become very much unlike God, so that what is familiar and comfortable to us is foreign to God. Today, we have no lack of revelation from God. We know what he commands. We know what he's like. We have access to the Bible more than any generation in history. We have no lack of revelation If we have ignorance of it, it's even more our fault than ever, but it's no less prevalent. And still, we fill in the gaps of our knowledge of God, and we fill in the gaps in our perception of relational closeness with God, with things that are familiar to us, and it's still idolatry, and it still hurts us. In difficult circumstances, in painful times, rather than turning to God who is holier than us, we tend to default to worshiping the familiar because it is comfortable to us. The familiar is something that we can use to self-soothe in the middle of great pain. The Sunday morning is a time designed for all Christians to bring our pain to Jesus Christ. But too many of us are bringing our pain to church instead of bringing it to Jesus, and you can tell which one is happening by how easy it is for someone else to mess it up for you. If your relief and comfort is hindered in any way by the band playing a new version of your favorite song that's nowhere near as good as the original one, It's possible you could only be fellowshipping with what's familiar to you and it may not involve fellowship with the actual person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here for you to bring your pain to to meet with you at church regardless of how the band sounds. Another illuminating principle is that whatever you're most afraid of offending is most likely the object of your worship. We need a culture where the chief concern is how God feels about something and the last concern is how I feel about it. And we can put how others feel about that somewhere in the middle there. We desperately need to readjust our framework for how we decide what is and what is not right worship. What sounds or feels right to us or meets our personal preferences is not trustworthy because the fact is that's the root of our deepest problem what feels good to us in worship. We're inherently, naturally idolaters. We perpetually worship either the wrong things or the right things in the wrong way. It's who we are apart from Christ. So if the greatest problem is idolatry, then the solution to that is right worship, not simply worship that feels right. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, 
please hear me, I'm not saying that we can't have personal preferences, okay? For example, purely from the standpoint of personal preference, I am not a huge fan of the super popular Chris Tomlin songs. Feel free to call Kirk Cameron and revoke my evangelical membership if you like. It's fine. But I tell you what, that personal preference aside, all of his extra choruses added to perfectly good hymns should in no way be a barrier to my interaction with Jesus on a Sunday morning. Even if it's played in the key he originally sings them in and I can't hit any of the notes, I am still invited, but most crucially, I am still able to taste and see that the Lord is good. I am still capable of participating in worship joyfully in spite of my preferences. And God is still honored by my joyful participation against my preferences, even more so because I'm setting his values and the values of my brothers and sisters higher than my own. That's a benefit to us. On a practical level, if we have a congregation as diverse as the one in heaven will be, then we should expect to routinely experience and participate in music that does not meet our personal preferences and cultural experience background. We do that to bless others. And none of what I've said today is meant to imply that music is in any way irrelevant or doesn't matter. It is useful for evoking emotions appropriate to worship. And to a degree, personal desire and culture will dictate how that works. Now, you might rightly ask, aren't we trying to keep culture out of our worship, though? And aren't we trying to avoid desire fulfillment? Well, not exactly, because in biblical worship, the law of God is the standard by which we shape culture into something worshipful. And our desires are not to be gotten rid of, but they are to be focused on Christ. Rather than culture becoming an idol, culturally appropriate music can be used like a prescription lens to bring the true image of God into focus. Worship becomes more clear for a person when the culture is cut and shaped according to the word of God. Too much emphasis on culture and the lens will distort the image. Too little emphasis and the image remains fuzzy and hard to relate to. But with the right fine-tuning according to scripture, we can produce a lens that is really clear and gives a clear, definite view of the image of God that has an experiential component that can really be a blessing to people. The lenses become the focus rather than the tool, though, the moment we abandon the commands of God. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. They were trying to make eyeglass lenses out of solid gold coins. It didn't work. They focused on the lens rather than seeing through it to the clearer image of God. But this issue of distorting and reshaping God is not for church attenders and conscious worshipers only. So if you're in the house and you're not a Christian, let's talk for a second about this. It's not just for Christians. The same principle of idolatry is as much behind the rejection of Christ as it is the incorrect worship of him. To avoid submitting to God, we fill the gaps in our understanding of him in one of two ways. We'll either make him more naturally similar to us or make him less so. We make him more so to make him more palatable to us. We make him less so to push him away. Either way, we're using the familiar. We make him into the image of comfortable familiarity and make him more like us so that less and less is required of us to be with him. We ease our conscience by making him as understanding of us as we are so that he won't expect anything more of us than we expect of ourselves. On the other hand, if we make him more familiar to our pain, perhaps reshaping him into the image of an abusive father or parent or husband or some monster that is detestable to us, then we ease our conscience by making ourselves out to be more righteous than he is. Then he's not worthy of our service. Then we don't have to change at all. In this scenario, 
we have become God. You either make a golden calf or you make yourself the golden calf. But either way, your desires become your God. Now, this might make our consciences feel better for a moment or feel somewhat eased, but according to Romans 1, it's actually seared them. Have you ever been burned so bad that it doesn't hurt anymore? If you didn't know anything about burns, you might think that the one that hurts less is the less serious one. But in reality, it's possible to be burned so bad that you just lose the nerve endings and you don't feel the pain anymore. Infection is still going to set in, though, because you don't have any skin. It's a bad situation. That's what it means to have a seared conscience. If you're hearing these words and you don't serve Jesus and it doesn't hurt, then I pray that God would reopen that wound for your own sake and for his glory in your life. I pray it hurts so that you will seek healing, that you would ask yourself, what are you worshiping and why? And is it giving you what you want? And this leads us back to our question. We've already looked at being remade in the image of our world and our desires, and now I invite you to consider one last alternative with me. In our third main point, rather than being remade in the image of our world or our desires, let us consider what it means to be remade into the image of God. It means at least three more things. First, that we will die to our idols. Now, it could be objected that pickiness about worship is no longer relevant in light of the gospel. Doesn't grace cover over our bad worship? Well, yes and no. Uh, It covers over yes, it does not excuse. Christ came to die because we perpetually worship the wrong things. If we weren't, we don't have a relationship with God, that's our fundamental problem. We worship the wrong things, that's why Christ had to come. And what he died to purchase for us is not the ability to continue worshiping wrongly, but a restoration of the relationship and a return to right worship. We don't have a relationship with God apart from worship of him. If we aren't worshiping, we are sinning. If we're sinning, we're not engaging in the relationship. So the Venn diagram of worship and relationship is really just a circle. It's the same thing. Christ is inviting you back into relationship with him in right worship because of Christ. And the gospel only makes worship more important because the Jesus that died for you is the same one that gave Moses the Ten Commandments. As Paul put it, should we continue sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? It's not that grace is conditional upon dying to the idols, but that receiving the grace always means dying to the idols. The gospel is poison to an idolatrous person. If a guy walks around and says, hey, I just drank a gallon of hemlock juice and walks around fine for an hour, you're going to be very suspicious of this. Not because dying is a requirement for drinking poison, but because drinking a lethal amount of poison is, to no one's surprise, lethal. The same principle applies here. Grace is poison to the idolatrous old man. This is better than the alternative in our story where thousands of people are killed, but it's not less than that. Either way, the idolaters must die. What has changed is that God has brought to life a part of us that survives the progressive destruction of our idolatrous flesh that we call sanctification. So based on our treatment of our former idols, we have to ask, are we being remade in the image of God? If so, secondly, then our God will come into conflict with our desires and with our world. Notice the repentance of the sons of Levi at the very end of the story. This is what we call Reformation. Throughout scripture and history, Reformation is always marked by a destruction of idols and a restoration of right worship. 
Notice that all great revivals of the church have been precipitated by some form of reformation of worship, not necessarily by political revolution, although that has sometimes happened as a result. But in her book, The First Salute, Barbara Tuckman wrote, revelations produce other men, not new men. Reformation produces new men. If you want the world around you to change, then even more important than how you vote is how you worship. It's not that one renders the other invalid, It's that only one is worthy of placing your hope in. The most necessary thing for the way that you interact with the world, the most impactful thing about the way that you interact with the world is what and how you worship. The most necessary thing for the health of our relationships is what and how we worship. To the degree that your friendships, your parenting, your marriage are shaped by the worship of God, there'll be a blessing to those involved. To the degree that they're shaped by idolatry, however, they will harm the ones that we love. Parents, the most important thing we can do for our children is to worship God rightly. Husbands, the most important thing we can do for our wives is to worship God rightly. Friends, you guessed it. The most important thing we can do for our relationships, for our friendships with one another and others is to worship God rightly. The way that you worship will influence the way those around you worship. And if you want an example of the effect of prioritizing right worship of God, let's talk about how to better love our neighbors of a different ethnicity than ourselves. It's something that's necessary for all of us to improve in. You want to know a very helpful tool for it? The tool is to become enthralled with the image of God until you can recognize it in anyone regardless of how dissimilar they are to you. The image of God is in every person on the planet in equal measure. You want to know how to love people who struggle with homosexuality? Become so infatuated with the image of God that when you see it in them, it elicits love from you. Sin can mar, but it can never fully obscure the image of God in a person. Love God's true image so much so that even the faintest hint of it is attractive to you. Shortly after our passage in Exodus, Moses sees the glory of the Lord, and he comes away with his face shining, and it's very disconcerting to everybody around him. For us now in Christ, when we look to God, we see the image of a father with his face shining lovingly towards us. And we come away shining with that same love towards others as we recognize the image of God in him and are attracted to it. The most influential thing in our lives is what and how we worship. If we become conformed to the image of Christ, who is the exact imprint of the Father, and we become the fragrance of Christ, spread everywhere so that those who love him are being drawn to us because we remind him of them. Them of him, excuse me. It's a very important that as we're being conformed to that image, we have a very clear understanding of what it is. Have you ever noticed how in pictures of Jesus, he tends to have the ethnicity of whatever context he's displayed in? I think it's probably fairly easy for all of us to see the problem with that. But what I'm not suggesting is that we simply make the depictions more appropriately Semitic. According to our church's confession of faith, the vast majority of Reformed church history, and most importantly, the second commandment in scripture, All images of God, including Jesus, are sinful. Truthfully, there is more similarity between any humanly created image of Jesus and the golden calf than there is between any of those pictures in the eternally glorious Jesus. The first two are creations, the second is the creator. Now, please hear me. You don't have to agree with me on this in order to get what I'm saying here, but I do think it's important, and I'll give you one reason why. When my wife and I first started dating, I was about 17 years old. And 17-year-old boys have categorically abysmal room-cleaning skills. 
So we were at my house one day getting ready to leave for somewhere else. I run into my room to grab something. She walks in behind me to see what she's getting herself into. And she will tell you to this day, that's the closest she's ever come to breaking up with me. Now, the reason was not because of how messy my room was, although that was remarkable, to be sure. The reason was that a year earlier, I'd gotten dumped by a girl. And there was a picture of me and that girl on my desk still. Now, I'm telling you with all of the honesty that I can muster, I'm so serious, it was not there intentionally. (laughs) I did not forget. I, I did forget. I did not mean for that to still be there. I really just hadn't cleaned off my desk in a year and a half. I know. It was that bad. But my new girlfriend was really upset about this. Why do you think she was, though? I mean, the girl in the picture was fairly similar looking to her. They're both white girls, both about the same height, about the same weight. My girlfriend had even dyed her hair red at the time, so they had the same hair color. What's so bad about using a picture of my ex as a stand-in for my new girlfriend? (laughs) No? Married guys, if I couldn't get away with that with a new girlfriend, do you think it would be better if any of us used a picture of someone other than our wives to keep in our wallets in place of her? Probably it wouldn't go over too well, even if it was really similar looking. Like, what if we used a picture of her sister? Would that make it any better? No. Of course it wouldn't make it any better because we don't get married to generic women. We get married to specific women. We don't worship a generic God. We worship a specific God. He didn't come as a generic man. He came as a specific man. We don't know what he looked like yet, but that's okay. We're told to wait at the foot of the mountain until we see him as he is. And if our understanding of the image of God is so impactful for how we relate to other people around us, then why would we potentially detract from that with approximate placeholders? See, the problem with our images of Christ and the golden calf is three things. First off, they're not God. Creature-creation distinction, very important. Secondly, though, they obscure our ability to see God in the ways that he is rightly imaged, which is through people. And thirdly, they fail to meet the needs and desires for which we created them in the first place. And this is the final implication of our third point today. If you're being remade in the image of God, You'll be dying to your idols. Christ will be coming into conflict with your sin in your world. But most importantly, if you're being remade in the image of God, you will be satisfied. Here's the problem with all of this talk about reformation and right worship of God. It's never been accomplished by obligation, rather only ever by infatuation. This is why I made a point to address images from the standpoint of a romantic, loving relationship. Listen to this promise about the new covenant from Hosea 2. This is God speaking about the new covenant and about how he's going to relate to his people in it. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer me as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And it goes on to say, no longer will she call me my Baal, but rather she'll call me my husband. You see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? He's not speaking through thunder and flashes of lightning or even through Moses anymore. He allures us now. He calls lovingly and personally to us each through the person of Jesus Christ now. At the hand of Jesus Christ, 
our pleasures everlasting. The desires that the Israelites invented a God to fulfill would actually have been met and exceeded had they continued to maintain the right worship of the right God. Look at verse 10 at what God offers Moses when Israel sins. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you every good thing that I promised to Israel because you have been worshiping rightly. I'll make your descendants into a nation. But look what Moses does. One of the most beautifully Christ-like actions of his entire life, he does not use his right worship before God as a basis to claim the blessing of God only for himself. Rather, he uses his right worship of God to be in proximity to God, to plead for the mercy of God on the people of God according to the character of God. And the characteristic of God that Moses highlights as the reason that he should have mercy on the people of Israel is the same characteristic that you and I are banking on to find eternal satisfaction in Jesus today. It is his faithfulness. As surely as Christ died, if you are in him, you will have eternal pleasures in God. In light of that surpassing pleasure and satisfaction, of what account are our personal preferences about how the music sounds on a Sunday morning? You see, the fuzzy feeling that so many of us are chasing with our individual ideas of what worship music should sound like or should not sound like will one day be eclipsed by a far greater joy in Jesus. We have to stop worshiping our worship in the meantime. The goal is not the fuzzy feeling worship gives you, and it's not the goosebumps you get when the music is on point, but that's actually good news because it's not hindered when those things aren't there because the music is not on point or it's not your favorite song. And please hear me, I'm not hating on fuzzy feelings. I'm saying if you want fuzzy feelings, there's better ones after right worship than there are in the pursuit of those fuzzy feelings in the first place. Okay, If you want to feel joy and satisfaction in God, it's found in worshiping God rightly regardless of your preferences. It's not found in insisting on your individual preferences. Worship is not something we do because of the feeling it gives us. It is secondarily something we do because of how we feel about God. It is primarily something we do because God is worthy. We have to put the pursuit of personal feelings aside for the greater pursuit of a greater God who also happens to offer greater pleasures. And not only that, but Jesus is the only God in the entire universe that can satisfy both your desires and your conscience. Christ offers unending fulfillment of your greatest desires in such a way that will not only ease your conscience, but satisfy it. Joy, pleasure, satisfaction like you have never known, and there's not a single part of your mind, body, or soul saying anything other than, yes, this is right, this is what I was made for. The gospel is at its core a message that God cares about worship, And he cares about bad worship enough to die in order to make it right. That is a message of forgiveness for wrong worship that is done in ignorance or repented of, but it is not a message that endorses anything less than excellence in worship. The fact that people no longer drop dead over wrong worship is not an indication that God no longer cares or cares any less. Rather, it's an indication that the perfect man already died in order to extend grace to anyone who would have it. He is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of him. Of course, it's still a message of hope. The gospel is not a threat of execution over wrong worship. It's a pardon for that very thing. But the hope that it takes is in the form of receiving an invitation to participate in eternal right worship. Most importantly, what I hope you hear from me today is not mainly threatening to deter from wrong worship, but enticement to engage in right worship. Right worship is the greatest joy any of us will ever experience. And I want to conclude here with what I hope is a helpful distinction. 
It's possible that you may have heard what I've said today as meaning that we should primarily pursue the feeling that right worship gives us, or that the problem with wrong worship is that it doesn't feel as good as right worship. I want to be super clear, that is a secondary issue. The primary reason to worship God is because he's worthy. He's worthy because of who he is and what he's done. He is, after all, the God who brought our fathers out of Egypt and brought us out of idolatry. And in a few minutes here, we're going to have one of the best possible opportunities this side of heaven to look at Jesus and his worth as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Far from the efforts of the Israelites to bring God down to their level by remaking him in the image of creation and feasting to glorify their own desires, we are invited to partake of Christ on his terms as he would have him. We get to recognize and remember the permanent intimacy that was purchased for us when instead of Moses coming down from the mountain to bring God's wrath on idolatry, Jesus came down personally as God bringing reconciliation and right relationship with him. In a moment, rather than a sinful idolatrous priest holding up the image of a false God saying, behold your God who brought you out of Egypt, Mike's gonna come down, he's gonna hold up the bread and the wine and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then together, we are all going to participate and recall the finished work of the faithful priest, Jesus Christ. And with spiritual eyes, we will see Christ for us today. So church, please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to behold our God who brought us out of Egypt. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit and enable us to engage in right worship that honors you and that places you in the part of our hearts where you deserve to be the foremost, where you become our focus and our fixation. We pray the blood of Christ for forgiveness of the times we failed to do that, of our inability to do it on our own, and we thank you for his sacrifice and for his active obedience in worshiping you as you deserve on our behalf. So please, accept the worship of Christ for us today and enable us to follow after him in that. We pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.